Richard Bell teaches early American history at the University of Maryland. He has received several teaching prizes and major research fellowships, including the National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Award. His first book, We Shall Be No More, Suicide and Self-Government in the Newly United States, was published in 2012. His new book, Stolen, his topic today, tells the story of five free young black boys who were kidnapped in Philadelphia in 1825 and taken to the Deep South. Today, we will hear about their ordeal and their resistance, culminating in a daring attempt to escape and bring their captors to justice. Please join me in welcoming Richard Bell. Uh, good afternoon by two minutes. Good afternoon, uh, everyone. It is lovely uh, to see you all uh, on a slightly dreary Boston uh, midday. Um, I spent a few years living in uh, Boston and love this city and miss this city. Now I live near Washington, uh, D.C., and in my time here more than a decade ago, I had the good fortune to uh, um, do some research for a previous book uh, in the Athenaeum, and that was, uh, as you can tell, one of the architectural and cultural highlights of my research experience uh, of my career. So it's wonderful, an honor to be back here talking about this uh, new book with all of uh, you. Uh, I'm going to talk for about, uh, probably on the short side, maybe about 30, 35 minutes, and then see what questions uh, and comments you guys have so we can have more of a uh, dialogue in the time we have uh, available. If you, if you can't hear me at any point, start waving around and I'll start yelling at you, okay? Um, okay. Cornelius Sinclair was 10 years old and he was trapped. He was stuck in the belly of a small ship that might have looked a bit like this one, a small ship bobbing in the middle of the Delaware River about a mile south of Philadelphia. A man had grabbed this child from a spot near Philadelphia's city market about an hour ago, had shoved a black gag into Cornelius's mouth, tossed him into a wagon, and hauled him here. And it was dark below the waterline, but Cornelius could see just enough to know that he was not the only person locked down there. Four other pairs of eyes stared back at him, four other black boys. One looked about his size. He was probably nine or ten years old, too. Two more were taller, perhaps 14 or 15 years old. The last of them was shorter and smaller than the rest. He might have been as young as eight years old. Yesterday, all five boys had been free. But now, suddenly, they were slaves. Prisoners of a gang of child snatchers who planned to sell their lives and their labors, most likely to plantation owners in the deep, deep South. If their abductors got away with this, Cornelius would spend the rest of his life as someone else's property somewhere very far away. He would never see his family again. Cornelius disappeared in late August 1825, one of dozens of African-American children to vanish in similar circumstances from Philadelphia in that single year alone. In the early 19th century, Philadelphia was the hub of American slavery's blackest market. 
Its tangled alleys and its gridded streets were hunting grounds for crews of professional kidnappers who made their livings turning free black kids like Cornelius into southern slaves. These kidnappers did their work swiftly and shamelessly in brazen affront to Philadelphia's reputation as the city of brotherly love, as a haven for people of color, and as the headquarters of America's anti-slavery movement at the time. But to kidnappers and traffickers, of course, none of that mattered. And in truth, early 19th century Philadelphia was probably one of the most dangerous places to be free and black anywhere in the United States. And this was a product of its location. It was, at the time, the nearest major free city to the slave south. Philadelphia was just 40 miles north of the Mason-Dixon line, which runs along Pennsylvania's southern border for several hundred miles and divides Pennsylvania from several slave states immediately south, like Maryland and Virginia. And as Pennsylvania and other northern states had slowly disentangled themselves from race slavery in the 50 or so years after the American Revolution, that boundary running along Pennsylvania's southern border had, of course, become ever more important, especially for black people. By 1825, the year that Cornelius was kidnapped, Pennsylvania's southern border, the Mason-Dixon line, seemed to divide two worlds separating northern free states from southern slave states. For African Americans, it was the closest thing to a modern international border anywhere in North America. That freedom line, that frontier line, mattered. And Philadelphia's proximity to that line, running along Pennsylvania's southern border, made Philadelphia's many free black residents attractive targets for professional people snatchers. They would prey on members of this city's black community relentlessly, putting bullseyes on their backs and putting prices on their heads. And the people they stole away could fetch anywhere up to $15,000 in today's money per person in Mississippi, in Louisiana, Alabama, three of the new territories and states that were rising up along the Gulf Coast at exactly this time. The American settlers swarming into that region, which at the time was called the Southwest, even though the Southwest keeps going later on. The American settlers swarming into this new Southwest demanded and needed, they said, a nearly bottomless supply of forced manpower to cut sugarcane and to pick cotton. They would take almost anyone to do this work, including, it seems, children as young as 10-year-old Cornelius. Now, buying some of their enslaved laborers from kidnappers was probably not these planters' first choice, but their options had become restricted by 1825. Planters down in the Deep South had been forced to look to domestic sources for their manpower needs ever since the year 1808. Um, 1808 doesn't loom very large in, I think, many people's imagination in the chronology of slavery and freedom, but it's actually important if overlooked to date, because 1808 was the year that the Congress and the Jefferson administration um, passed into law uh, a new law banning American participation in the transatlantic 
slave trade, right? It becomes illegal for Americans to bring in black people for the purposes of enslaving them from Africa or the Caribbean after 1808. And that 1808 decision is therefore actually a major turning point in the history of slavery in America. That 1808 decision in Washington spurs the growth within the United States of a domestic slave trade, an internal slave trade, an internal market for the redistribution of enslaved people. After that 1808 decision, interstate slave traders here in the United States try to satisfy these southwestern settlers' demand for black labor by bringing them thousands of American-born slaves each year from existing slave states in the Upper South, like Virginia and Maryland, where I live now. But settlers down in the Deep South want still more. And the more they are willing to pay, the more tempting and profitable it became for anyone sufficiently cold-blooded to try to kidnap free children like Cornelius from northern cities like Philadelphia, smuggle them into the larger legal supply chain, and then sell them in this vast new southwestern slave market. These economic incentives left Philadelphia's large and dynamic free black community dangerously exposed. By 1825, the city of Philly had become the center of an interstate, interregional kidnapping operation. It had become the northern terminus of what I refer to in the book as the reverse underground railroad. So when I say reverse underground railroad, I'm referring to the abduction and trafficking into slavery of free black Americans within the United States. Now, this reverse underground railroad and its much better known namesake, the Underground Railroad, they of course ran in opposite directions and for completely opposite purposes. But in some ways, they are actually mirror images of each other. On the Underground Railroad, the good one, the famous one, the Harriet Tubman one, uh, enslaved people abandoned southern plantations and would trek northward, dreaming of new lives and opportunities in freedom. On what I'm calling the reverse Underground Railroad, free black people vanished from northern cities like Philly and were made to trudge southward to be sold into plantation slavery. On the Underground Railroad, conductors like Harriet Tubman risked their lives and their liberties to help black fugitives make these epic journeys of freedom. On what I'm calling the reverse Underground Railroad, the conductors and station agents were kidnappers and traffickers motivated by money. Both of these networks roared to life in the early 19th century to exploit what by then had become major differences in the legal status of slavery in the North versus the South. Both of these networks were loosely organized and highly opportunistic. Both ran on secrecy and relied on small circles of trusted participants, on false identities, on forged documents, and on disguise. Whether traveling from the slave states into the free states or being sucked from the free states into the slave states, 
Black voyagers on both networks sometimes had to hide in stables, barns, and attics. The direction of travel was different, but the routes, the paths, the roads taken by freedom seekers and by victims of kidnapping like Cornelius Sinclair were largely the same ones. They might even have passed one another on the roads from time to time. What's more, the size of the traffic on both these railroads, the good one and the evil one, was roughly the same. Each and every year in the early 19th century, each network carried hundreds of black adults, either into freedom or into slavery. Most Americans, I hope, know a good deal about the Underground Railroad, the good one, the famous one. Historians have now spent more than a century studying the tactics and strategies that um, Harriet Tubman and her fellow conductors and station agents used to help freedom seekers escape from slavery. Their achievements are starting to saturate popular culture in this country, and that's a good thing to be clear. Um, I, th I tend to have a pretty dark and pessimistic view of what American history was like, and I find it hard to find heroes and people I admire in American history, but the Underground Railroad is full of people to admire. Um, and so it's wonderful that there are now walking tours, there was a television show, there are visitor centers, there's a big museum in Cincinnati, uh, and there's, of course, this recent um, movie. I'm just going to step away from the mic for 30 seconds. Um, this movie came out, I think, in November last year, right? I'm not sure anyone in this audience has uh, seen it. If you haven't, uh, check it out. It's not perfect, but it's well worth your time. Um, and this is the first time Harriet Tubman had been front and center in a Hollywood film. And um, Hollywood analysts like to predict how much a movie is going to make in its first weekend at the U.S. box office before it comes out. And they predicted it would make $8 million to the U.S. box office in its first 48 hours, which is very good. In fact, it made $12 million in the first 48 hours, which if you do the very basic math that even I can do, <laughs> is overperforming expectations by 50%. And to ask yourself, have you ever performed other people's expectations of you by 50%? I know, I know, I have not. If my wife was here, she'd tell me I think it would be Um, so, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a movie, whether it's the museum, uh, whatever it might be, we're starting to recognize the contributions of the Underground Railroad to American history and to celebrate the men and women who created the secret network through which the enslaved could escape to freedom, the Underground Railroad. We know far less, I think, about what I'm calling this afternoon the reverse Underground Railroad. Its conductors, its station agents, worked tirelessly to remain untouchable and unknowable. And the identities of all but a handful of these monsters still remain unknown to us centuries later. Unlike Harriet Tubman, who was actually a gifted publicist for the work she was doing and actually went on lecture tours and fundraising tours to raise awareness for the extraordinary work she was doing, the criminal traffickers who built the reverse Underground Railroad did none of that. They never went on lecture tours. They never went on public fundraising tours. Only rarely 
do their names and their crimes appear in surviving police files or trial transcripts? That legal low profile, the result of the decades they spent in the shadows, protected by bribes, by greed, and by far too much indifference to what they were doing among contemporary law enforcement. Unlike legal interstate slave traders who sometimes left their papers to southern colleges and historical societies, the criminal outlaws who built the reverse Underground Railroad left no business records, no bundles of private papers for historians like me to read or examine. They did not write memoirs, they did not pose for paintings or photographs, leaving journalists or activists to, to simply guess at what they might have looked like. Their homes and their warehouses no longer stand today. But as I argue in this new book, Stolen, these professional kidnappers nonetheless left their mark everywhere on 19th century America. If we think not just about Philadelphia, which is where this book is set, but every northern town and city, so Cincinnati, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, New York, Boston too, and many others. If we think not just about 1825, when this true story is set, but about all the other years in the first 50 years of the 19th century, we can say with some confidence that all told, these kidnappers stole away tens of thousands of free black people, many of them children, like Cornelius, under the age of 16. Most of those they kidnapped could not read or write, and to be clear, they were never heard from again. Their families and friends, of course, searched, petitioned, advertised. They waited in earnest for any sort of news, but normally no news came. Free black people in northern cities like Philly had very few white allies at this time in American history, beyond the ranks of a few Quaker-led anti-slavery societies. What's more, white employers openly discriminated against African-American job applicants. While city constables generally ignored people of color's complaints and turned a blind eye to most white-on-black street violence, so when children like Cornelius went missing, their parents could hardly ever persuade mayors or magistrates to get involved, to do something. It was rarer still for anyone to be able to gather enough evidence to issue arrest warrants, to search property, or to arrest suspects. And even then, experienced members of these kidnapping crews knew exactly what to do and what to say to talk their way out of trouble and to get back to this work. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of 12 Years a Slave. Oh, bloody hell, right. <laughs> For the record, if you're recording in the back, that was pretty much everyone. Um, so I'll tell you what you already know, which is that 12 Years a Slave is the name of a memoir. Um, and it was written by a guy called Solomon uh, Northup, uh, who looking back now is... Uh, to us, the most well-known victim or forced rider on this reverse Underground Railroad, a free black person who was uh, kidnapped and sold into slavery. Um, and he had that in common with uh, tens of thousands of other free black Americans in the early 19th century. Um, but unlike so many of these other folks, 
Um, he was later able to escape his enslavement. Here's a trivia question for you. How long did it take him to escape his enslavement? <laughs> I noticed no one said the answer, but what is the answer? You are being recorded at the back, so it's, you want to sound as smart as possible. Um, it took him 12 years of slave. He was able to escape, which makes him very unusual, to be clear. And he also later wrote about it, which is why we have this extraordinary memoir, 12 Years a Slave. And in that memoir, which he wrote in 1853, Northup explains what riding that railroad was like for him. He explains how a pair of well-dressed, white confidence men lured him and at the time, Northup was in his mid-30s, literate, relatively prosperous and well-educated, a professional musician. How they lured him into New York City from his home in upstate in 1841. In Manhattan, these two well-dressed white confidence men wined him, dined him, and drugged him. And the next thing he knew, he'd been sold as a slave to an interstate slave trader in Washington, D.C., who then forced him onto a slave ship bound for New Orleans. And in New Orleans, Northup was sold in one of that city's infamous slave showrooms to a planter who then set Northup to work cutting sugarcane. In 2013, an Oscar-winning um, film based on Northup's extraordinary autobiography drew, I think, overdue attention to his ordeal. Um, and I personally think it's an amazing piece of cinema that every American should see. It's also incredibly hard to watch, which is the point. Um, but both the memoir and the 2013 Oscar-winning movie offer, it turns out, distorted and perhaps misleading views of who the agents of this reverse underground railroad typically were, who they typically targeted, and how they typically made their money. Because it turns out that Northup's experience as a rider on this railroad was in some ways not at all typical of the larger phenomenon. Most kidnappings were committed not by smartly dressed white confidence men, but by people from poorer backgrounds who'd um, never set foot in a fancy bar or restaurant and never wined or dined anyone. Most of the kidnappers rarely approached highly literate middle-aged men like Northup. That was unusual. These kidnappers, these human traffickers, preferred instead to lure away poorly educated street kids with ruses that could swiftly separate them from their families and friends. Very few of their captives would travel by ship all the way to New Orleans either. Instead, these kidnappers forced most boys and girls and adults to trek southward on foot in small walking chain gangs known as coffles after the Arabic word for caravan. Their prisoners would rarely end up in showrooms or on the auction block in New Orleans. They rarely made it that far. They were much more likely to be sold off along the way in ones or twos in furtive, all-cash deals to hard-up planters in the interior of Mississippi or the interior of Alabama, to men who wanted to buy more slaves but who were too cheap to pay big-city New Orleans slave prices. All of this is almost exactly what happened to 10-year-old Cornelius Sinclair, one of the five boys at the heart of my book. 
In August 1825, Cornelius and four other boys, Sam, Enos, Alex, and Joe, living in Philadelphia, fell into the hands of America's most fearsome gang of kidnappers. Their captors hustled them onto a ship just outside the city, and Philly's in the top right there. They warehoused them for a while, for a couple of weeks, in a pair of safe houses um, on the Delmarva Peninsula, right at the border between the state of Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland, marked with the dot there. And then their captors marched them on, halfway across this great continent of ours to the deep south, where they tried to sell these five children as slaves. That's a journey, by the way, of two million steps. Today, I'm not going to say much more about this soul-destroying journey on foot across the continent. And I'm also going to be purposefully vague and coy about what exactly the last three words of my book's subtitle mean. Five free boys kidnapped into slavery and their astonishing odyssey home. Which is to say, I'm not keen to give away everything about the book's ending. Maybe some of you will take a look. All I will say here is that what did happen next to Cornelius Sinclair and to these four other boys who met basically for the first time in the belly of that ship in Philly was indeed, as my editor put it, astonishing. It was astonishing to them, it was astonishing to the people around them, and it was astonishing to me as I researched and wrote this book as well. What did happen to these uh, five boys, not all of whom returned to Philadelphia, as the subtitle of the book implies. What did happen next, over the next two years, would involve two murders, three exhumations of dead bodies from the earth, an escape, a recapture, a suicide, a race riot, a lawsuit, the nation's first most wanted list, and America's largest manhunt so far, some of which takes place right here in Boston, Massachusetts. Instead, let me quickly note that the full story of what did happen next to Cornelius Sinclair and these four other boys who went missing from Philadelphia in 1825 is a story that has never before been fully told. And that's for obvious and I think understandable reasons. Cornelius was a child at the time he was abducted. Only one of these five boys was literate when they were kidnapped. They all came from hard-up families that were not the sort to leave behind traces in libraries and in archives. And that's a problem, right? Because historians need sources. We need lots and lots of sources if we're going to reconstruct past lives in ways that are true and fair. The stories and struggles of the many Americans who do not leave rich troves of papers, diaries, and letters often remain unstudied and untold as a result of these source absences. To reconstruct the most basic outline of Cornelius' journey along the reverse Underground Railroad, I began by wringing what I could from a small packet of letters written to or from this guy, his name is Joseph Watson, and he was the mayor of Philadelphia for a hot second in the 1820s. And because he's an elected official in an important city, his papers survive. 
Uh, and I also looked at coverage of Cornelius' case uh, in a single Philadelphia anti-slavery magazine, which took a strong interest at the time, as you'd expect an anti-slavery magazine to do. Now, historians have known about those two types of sources for this case for a while, but they turn out to be too few and thin on their own to sustain a whole book-length reconstruction of these extraordinary events. So I had to go looking elsewhere, digging around in pretty much any archive I could think of for scraps of fresh information that when put together, when stitched together, could maybe help flesh this all out. And I want to confess there's been a lot of failure and a lot of wasted effort on my part. A lot of days is spent in archives not unlike this one, spent finding absolutely nothing at all. When you do needle in the haystack work, you find a lot of hay and not many, not many needles. Um, but I do think it's been worth it, ultimately. Um, over the course of about six years of research uh, for this book, I've been able to unearth more than 100 uh, new sources about this particular case. Three of them, I, many of them, several of them, I consider to be real treasures. Um, I'll just highlight three of them super quick to give you a flavor. Um, one thing I found, with the help of another historian, uh, was the handwritten notes of a trial that took place in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. A trial that would decide Cornelius's fate slave or free, for the rest of his natural life. Second, I also came across something I thought I would never find, which is two letters written by one of the kidnappers, laying out some of this stuff and how they operated, and then denying all responsibility, saying the other guys did it and I had nothing to do with it, which is a bold-faced lie, by the way. And third, I came across something relatively early in the research process um, that is the thing that has stayed with me most for the many years I've been working, researching, and writing this book. Um, I came across in a pretty relatively obscure Philadelphia newspaper um, three days after Cornelius disappeared. And it was an ad placed there by his father. And it's, of course, a missing persons ad. And let me read it to you. Boy lost, my son, Cornelius Sinclair, a colored boy, about 11 years old, left his friends yesterday. And because he had no cause and had never before absented himself from us, we fear he's been seduced away by some evil-minded person. My son is a very dark, mixed-race lad, pretty stout built. He's got thin, long fingers. His eyes are weak. His left eye is smaller than his right. Any person hearing of our son will confer a favor on his afflicted parents by giving information to my employer at this address. Every time I read that, the words afflicted parents beam at me like spotlights uh, as an insight into what Joseph and his wife were going through. Before I seek your questions and we have a conversation, uh, let me wrap up with a couple of hopefully brief reflections about why I think studying America's reverse Underground Railroad is important and why Cornelius Sinclair's particular experience as a forced rider on it is worth your time. To begin with, I would argue 
forcefully that then as now, families simply belong together. And so any story about free children ripped from their families, and in this case, swallowed up by slavery, is a story worth putting forward on its own merits. But the remarkable ordeal that Cornelius and his four fellow captives endured also demands attention for many other reasons. For one thing, it serves as a pointed reminder that child snatching was heartbreakingly frequent and that black freedom in northern towns and cities in the decades before the Civil War was actually achingly fragile. It demonstrates, too, the important role that this grotesque trade in kidnapped free people played in accelerating the spread of slavery into the Deep South in this same period. Now, as I said, I'm not going to preview the book's second half or tell you exactly what happened to Cornelius after he was kidnapped and trafficked for him to Tuscaloosa, but I will drop a few big hints. I will say here that the dogged efforts of all those involved in trying to save him and the four other boys from the horrors of slavery in the Southwest would have profound consequences. The rescue efforts of parents and their allies and that campaign's aftermath would radicalize black communities across the free states, emboldening African Americans to embrace violence in the cause of self-defense and in the cause of mutual protection as almost never before in American history. Their efforts would reshape the rest of the American anti-slavery movement as well by encouraging activists, both white or black, especially those with access to a printing press, like the guy who wrote this anti-slavery children's alphabet, to focus the northern reading public's attention on the suffering of black families, forcibly separated by slavery, by slave trading, and by kidnapping. But most immediately, outrage over the abduction of these five particular boys would force lawmakers in the state of Pennsylvania to pass a tough new anti-kidnapping measure. That 1826 personal liberty law would enrage southern slaveholders, and it would set in motion a chain of court retaliations to it and political retaliations against it that culminated in the passage through Congress of something that I hope every K-12 student in this country has already heard of, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. A pro-slavery abomination coming out of Congress that put this country on a collision course with civil war within a decade. Cornelius Sinclair's experience as a forced rider on this reverse underground railroad was the result of the confluence of massive political and economic forces. And what happened to him and what he made happen next would, as I've just suggested, usher in a new chapter in the history of slavery and freedom in the United States. But that lasting legacy must not be allowed to obscure the urgent and human stakes of his particular story. 
a 10-year-old boy and four other free children were dragged into slavery in 1825. They would have to fight like hell to try to escape it. Thanks very much indeed. I look forward to your questions.